Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. All right, so I saw this thing on the Facebooks the other day, or, you know, whatever it is that you kids are using these days. Anyway, uh, I saw this thing, and it was a quote, and I don't know who said it. Didn't even bother to research it. I'm sorry for that. But basically, the quote said something like this. It says, sheep is a strange insult for Christians to use. Also, insults are strange things for Christians to use. Now, obviously, the second line of that quote is true. Like, we shouldn't be known for being people who are running around insulting people on the social medias. And yet, that does seem to be fairly common. But I want to sort of lean into this first part. That sheep is a strange insult for Christians to use. Have you noticed that sheep has become synonymous with like, oh, you're a person who blindly follows what everybody tells you to do. You're a dumb person. You're a person who doesn't think for themselves. You're a person who's not actually in charge of their own life, but it's just doing what the rest of the crowd does. And all of a sudden, that's become like this very terrible thing that you can use to describe someone else. And in some circles, Christians are actually the worst about sort of calling other people that. They're saying, oh, well, you're just buying into what the media is saying. You're just buying into what the government tells you. You're just buying into what everybody else thinks is cool. You are a sheep. The cruel irony here is that sheep is actually one of the most common ways in which Jesus describes his followers. Check it out. He says that he is the good shepherd and his sheep know his voice and answer his call. He warns and protects his flock from predators. He chases after them like a shepherd leaving 99 sheep to go and save the lost one. In John 10, 8 through 11, he says this, And who, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Which is exactly what Jesus did. You see, sheep is what Jesus calls you, and being the good shepherd, Jesus saw it as his task, as his role, as his duty, to step in front of the sheep, to be the protector for the sheep, and to actually give his life, to willingly lay down his life for the sheep. For Jesus, calling us sheep means that we are the ones for whom he died. We are the ones for whom he came. He lived a life as a human being. He lived among the sheep. And then taking all of the guilt, all of the sin, all of the iniquity of the sheep, he actually gives up his own life so that the sheep might live, both now and through eternity, right? He has come to give us life and life more abundantly. And that only comes through him sacrificing his life for the sheep. We are the ones who need Him to be able to lead us, to guide us, to protect us, to lay down His life for us so that we might live life the way that we were always meant to live it. When you think about it that way, sheep becomes less of a a derogatory term and more sort of adequately explains why and how we are. Like, why we act the way that we do and why that we think the way that we do. Because we are people who are desperately in need of a savior. We are people who are desperately in need of someone to protect us. 
Now I haven't spent too much time around sheep, uh, but I have spent a little bit of time around llamas. And I think they're basically the same thing. They're kind of like this weird giraffe-sheep hybrid. But here's what's really interesting about that, is that a llama doesn't really know it's like, you know, where it fits in the universe. In fact, maybe, maybe llamas are sort of like sheep that don't quite understand that they're sheep, right? Because they think that they're all like vicious and hardcore. Like if you ever see a llama man, they're like walking through the field looking all smug, you know? They spit on people. I don't know what kind of a like baller move is that, you know? But they do it. I actually, uh, we went to Peru one time, we were hanging out with these like Peruvian shepherds and they've got their cool little slings. They basically shepherd uh, llamas by throwing rocks at them and stuff, which is probably not super friendly to PETA, but anyway, it's what they do. And uh, it's amazing, you can actually, you know, if you can catch one, you can kind of, you know, hug a llama, get a nice little like selfie photo shot with it or something like that. And what I realized in that moment is two things. First off, uh, you've got to watch out while you're holding on to the neck of a llama. I mean, it is like a, you know, two-foot-wide snake, right? They're just wriggling and going all crazy and going all nuts. The second thing is, the llama does not realize that we think of it as a cute and stuffy, fluffed animal, or stuffed animal, you know? I mean, it really is just this funny-looking, cute kind of... You know, hipsters are putting it ironically in stickers and stuff like that all over things. And yet, to the llama, it's thinking like, wow, this human thinks it's going to get one up on me. Just wait until I spit on him or wait until I whip him with my hardcore neck or something like that. And it's actually kind of sad for the llama to not realize what it actually is, that it's a domesticated animal that is desperately in need of this shepherd to protect it from wild animals, to protect it from like bears and mountain lions, coyotes, all that kind of stuff, to protect it from wandering away to where it doesn't even get any food, and it can actually wander somewhere where it cannot feed or water itself, it can actually get lost and die because it has no capacity to live on its own. It's tragic then that this llama is thinking of itself as being like super hardcore, gonna take on whoever, and yet in reality, it is someone, something that is in desperate need of a shepherd. And I think that's exactly the way that you and I are. Right? Like, there's this one path that your world can take where you are just master of your own universe. You are in control of everything. You're doing whatever you want, whenever you want. You are the most important thing in your universe, and you are in absolute control. But if you have lived for even five minutes, you know that that's not true. Right? Like, even if you just have the most power, the most authority, everything that you want in life, there's still so much that you cannot control. It's like being a llama and thinking that you're a hardcore thing in charge of a situation when actually you're just a sheep. And I think so many of us live our lives that way. And yet, if you're able to sort of change your mind and recognize that there's actually a lot of beauty in being a sheep that knows it's a sheep, especially when you find a good shepherd, Right? And that's at the entire heart of Christianity, and it speaks to the core of who we are as human beings. That we are human beings who are made to actually find this good shepherd. In fact, it's sort of more like refinding. That initially we were human beings made to walk in step with God because we were made to follow Him. Because we are His creation, His beloved creation. And we were made to be protected, we were made to be led, we were made to be fed, and we were most importantly made to be saved by this good shepherd. 
And the rest of our lives then ought not to be spent in sort of like pushing against this shepherd or trying to sort of create our own path, trying to pretend that we're not sheep. Instead, our lives are actually best served. Most fruitful, most uh, abundant life is found in following this good shepherd. We see it in our central passage in Acts chapter 2. This is exactly what the church did as they were sort of getting started. Acts 2.42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching about Jesus and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It's interesting if you look at that terminology, awe and devoted are the words that are describing the way in which the people were responding. In fact, the church at that moment was known for having, uh, being filled with awe and being devoted to Jesus. It's interesting too, uh, if you think about it, the church didn't actually come up with the term Christian. In fact, the outside world came up with the word Christian because they would see people that were a part of the church. You know, they would call themselves brothers and sisters or followers of the way or followers of Jesus or something like that. And they'd say, look at those little Christs. They are following after Jesus, trying to be like him. They are people who are desperately trying to sort of look more and more like Jesus. They're trying to follow him in his way. And if you think about it, the call to Jesus that he makes to his disciples is the same one that he makes to you and I. When he saves us, he then beckons us to come and follow him. I would argue that our truest form of humanity, our truest selves, being the person that we were always made to be, is found solely thinking of ourselves as a sheep following after the good shepherd. And the church of the future is not going to be any different. In fact, as the church of the future, it's going to become increasingly important that we think of ourselves not as Christians or church members or anything like that, but instead we think of ourselves first and foremost as followers of Jesus. So here are the tools. First, uh, new tool number one is ordering of loves. This, like many of our tools, is actually an ancient tool. It's not exactly new. It's been uh, central to the life of the church, but I think it takes on a new importance in our lifetime. You see, because right now, we want to love all things equally. Uh, We want to be this kind of, you know, enigmatic and experienced person who's all over the place. And, you know, they love listening to Beethoven as much as they love, you know, seeing a Christopher Nolan movie, as much as they love being able to, you know, find the best hamburger in Denver or something like that. Like, we're just kind of these people that want to be sort of like omni-connected, omni-loving, right? We're loving all of these things. But I think that gets a little confusing sometimes, right? Because we love our spouse and we also love our favorite TV show and we love ice cream and hopefully all of those things are not the same level of love. You know what's one of the most useful things ever actually? Uh, When you're on an airplane and uh, they tell you, hey, you know, we don't think this is going to happen, but maybe at some point we could lose cabin pressure And these little, you know, little Ziploc baggies would drop down from the sky magically. And uh, in that moment, you as a parent are supposed to put those over uh, your face. I almost messed it up. You're supposed to put it over your face before you put it over your child's face. That's kind of like this common teaching. You know the reason why that's so incredibly important? 
Because in that moment when, you know, your plane is about to crash, when everything's going crazy, when, you know, people are flying all over and papers are going everywhere and, you know, half of your plane falls off and goes on the other side of this mysterious island that you'll spend the next six seasons hanging out on. Sorry, that was a deep cut reference. You can message me if you know what that's about. Anyway, uh, in that moment, you don't have the option to think to yourself like, well, wait a second, what would be most important here? Should I get my mask on first or should I get my kid's mask on first? What exactly should I be doing? And they know that the, as fast as the air gets sucked out of the plane cabin, in that moment of your brief indecision, you could actually become uh, without oxygen and not be able to function anymore, thus leaving both your child and yourself completely helpless. So instead, the airline goes ahead of you and says, what's actually most important is that you order these things, that you first put your mask on, then you protect the ones who are around you. I believe that our life needs to be ordered in exactly the same way. We need a ranking for things in our lives. We need to be able to say that, yeah, I may use the same word, love, for this cheeseburger that, are, that I ate, that I use for the person that I am most in love with on the planet, but those two loves are not the same thing at all. We need to be able to order them. Augustine actually said it this way. He says, But living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order. To love things in the right order. And I believe what he's saying there is that a person who properly orders his or her loves is a person who lives correctly. Now, I can't tell you how to order every single one of your loves, and I definitely, you know, I'm not going to even give it a shot. All I am going to say is that if you are a follower of God, if you are someone who has been saved by His grace, if you are someone who is a recipient of His gift of grace that comes from the cross, then Jesus ought to come first in the ordering of your loves. Always. See, we are his flock, and he is our good shepherd. And it gives us the most humanity, it gives us the most meaning and purpose and life when we follow after him. And that means loving him above and beyond everything else. Practically lived out, that means that the church ought to be more about Jesus and his word and his teaching than we ought to be about anything else that could pop up. More than any sort of cultural movement, more than any social movement, more than anything else, we ought to be a people who are about loving Jesus. And the church of the future is only going to be headed in the right direction when it is first and foremost heading after doing what makes it love God the most. Heading after loving Jesus with every single fiber of our beings. That is what it looks like to be the church that the future needs. And I believe that one of the uh, ways that we can actually do this is through the second tool. New tool number two is something that, we're, that I'm referring to as the common rule. See, following Jesus is not something that you sign up for. It's not something that you just, you know, check a box on a census or something like that. It's not something even that you decide once and then it doesn't affect the rest of your life. It is a constant pursuit. That is why it is called following, right? It is something that we do constantly and perpetually through our lives when we are choosing every moment to chase after Jesus. It is an intentional way of living. 
And this idea of the common rule actually comes from uh, the monastics. So people that were living in monasteries, you would sort of join this monastery or another, and in each particular monastery, they would have this common rule. And it was a rule for all the people that were a part of the monastery that this is the way in which we are choosing to live. It showed what they valued. So maybe they uh, valued like poverty and they said like we're taking a vow of poverty. That would be a part of the common rule. Maybe they valued like praying five times a day. And so they would put that on there. Maybe they valued, you know, spending a week every year in silence or something like that. All of these things would make up this common rule and it sort of set the tone for the way in which they were to live. It was focused on spiritual disciplines and values and commitments that they had. And as a result, it showed them the way in which they were to live. Now, I think, and I know this flies in the face of so much of our individualistic culture, but I think the true and best path forward for the life of the church, for the future of the church, is going to be more and more ways that we align ourselves to a certain way of living. In fact, it's not going to be found in all of us continuing to just, you know, chase after our own thing, our sort of hyper-individualistic, but instead I think it's going to be found in finding ways that we might be able to share our experience of Jesus with one another, finding ways in which we might be able to experience spiritual disciplines together and thus be able to hold each other accountable to those things. To even have like an expected way of living so that we might all have a target to shoot at. So that we might all have something that we can sort of collectively say, this is really difficult for me, this is really uh, easy and life-giving for me, whatever it is. Having those things shared together is something that we, I think, will help to foster this sense of following Jesus at an even deeper level. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to start thinking. I want you to spend a little time. And over the next month or so, we're going to be working through this as a group and hopefully coming up with something that we can all sort of commit to being and doing together. Sort of generating a dwell church common rule, if you will. So I want you to spend the next month really thinking through, like, what are the spiritual practices that are important to me? What are the things that keep me grounded and centered, that keep me following Jesus? What are the things that I value and that I want our church to value collectively? What are the things that I am intentionally deciding to commit myself to, and I want to be surrounded in my life by the people that are committed to the same things? Now, it's not going to become this, you know, if you can't do this 10 thing checklist, then you can't be a part of Dwell Church. It's not even going to be like, if you don't measure up to this document, then you're not a good Christian. I don't believe that that's the way in which Jesus has called us to live. But what it is instead going to be is a once and for all sort of commitment for us to say, hey, we, at least for maybe a year or, you know, for this life stage of our church, we are trying to hold ourselves to living in this certain way that helps us to follow Jesus at an even deeper level. And I, for one, am super excited and super curious to see what God does through that. To see what God does with our tiny little devotion, our simple little following, when He combines it with His supernatural power and influence. I'm curious to see what's going to happen both inside of us and in the world around us. So go and be the sheep. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.